right, all right. Hey, um, random trivia to start our day. Did you know that this year on Halloween, Americans would have spent an estimated $10.14 billion, with a B, dollars on Halloween? $10 billion we've all just blown in the past couple of weeks on candy, on costumes, on decorations, on the whole thing. $10 billion. It's safe to say that some people are very much, uh, very much into Halloween. Maybe that's some of you, that's, maybe that's not, but uh, there's a large portion of people where we're just like, yeah, this is something that we love, uh, and this very much plays into um, what we've been talking about in this series, that there is kind of a fascination with the supernatural. There's a fascination with things that we can't see or that we don't understand or that we can't explain. So we've been talking about that in this series, kind of asking the question, like, is there more to our world than meets the eye? Um, And um, what does the Bible have to say about that? Uh, Like, is is there more to the world than meets the eye? What does the Bible have to say about that? What does, like, the Christian faith, how does that intersect that? We've been talking about this. Um, So this is part three of a four-part series. Um, So if you've missed any of this series, you can check it out on the website. That might help you catch up just a little bit. Uh, But last week, we ended uh, with this idea of talking about, hey, there's something wrong with our world. We would agree on that, that things are broken. Things aren't as they should be. Uh, There's death and destruction and evil. And and how how do we explain that? Like, what, what is that? And we said it's a it's kind of two things. It's a, it's a both and that one, we have the issue of, of human sin. As people, we are broken, messed up individuals. And we do things we shouldn't. We say things we shouldn't. The things that we should do, we don't do. The things that we shouldn't do, we do. Uh, and it, it just unleashes chaos on the world. And there's this problem of individual human sin. But then there's also uh, this problem of, of spiritual like, evil as well. Spiritual rebellion, of a supernatural rebellion. Just like humanity is sinful and fallen, there's some spiritual beings that are also in rebellion against God. And we said, whatever the solution to that is, if there's a solution to that, if there's a resolution to that, if there's a, how, how are things going to get fixed, it has to address both parts of what's wrong. It's got to address the human sin issue, but it also has to do something about these spiritual powers of darkness. And so today, we're going to take a look at the solution, and I don't want to spoil it from the beginning, but I'm going to spoil it from the beginning. Spoiler alert, the solution is Jesus, okay? Uh, This is one of those times when Jesus is the answer, okay? Um, Jesus is the solution to what is wrong with the world, to both parts of what is wrong with the world. And I want to kind of dive into that idea today because so often we end up looking at uh, just one part or another, and and we don't see the whole picture. Um, You know, sometimes we'll we'll end up talking specifically, you know, if you grew up in or around church and and kind of the modern church, the the American evangelical church, we talk a lot about how, how Jesus addresses the human sin problem. It's like, okay, I recognize that I'm a sinner, uh, and, and, and something's got to be done about that. I've failed. I've broken God's law. I've broken, you know, uh, his commands. And so Jesus is going to, to take that away from me uh, and, and take that upon himself. But a lot of times we don't ever talk about, well, how does Jesus address this problem of spiritual evil and these spiritual beings and this kind of supernatural powers of, of darkness? Um, and when we only tell one part of the story and not both parts, we're only telling part of the story. Our own faith suffers because we don't have a grasp and an understanding of the good news of the gospel. And it also impacts our ability to tell other people about it as well. Um, there, there's a young woman who I know, this is actually kind of one of her objections to the Christian faith. Uh, this is someone who would not say she's Christian, uh, very much kind of just like, I'm spiritual but not religious, which is like the, kind of the buzzword of the day. It's like, okay, well that ex- describes like everybody. It's not that cool anymore to be spiritual. 
spiritual but not religious. Um, and so that, that's how she would describe herself. Definitely not a Christian, very much into kind of new age thinking of like there's a higher power, there's a force, there's a something. And when it comes to the idea of Jesus and the cross, like one of her objections is, oh, I just don't get it. What does some guy dying 2,000 years ago for my sins, how does that affect the world today? How does that fix anything? And she's only ever had part of the story, just the human sin part. So I want to look at the other part of the story today. Like we said, uh, whatever the solution was going to be, that Jesus has to show up and address both parts of the problem, be the solution to human sin uh, and also supernatural evil. And so first, let me just, let me just talk for a second on how he's the, the solution to human sin. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this portion because, man, if you've been growing up in or around church, even if you haven't, there, this is kind of what's baked in, that we understand. It's okay, Jesus died for my sins. He rose from the grave. Yay! Like, we, we get that, that, um, that kind of church answer, and it's important, and it's powerful, but the, the, he, he does address the human sin part of things. Like, again, as I said, you and I, we are broken people. We are messed up, and, and sometimes we want to push back on that, and we go, well, you know, no, basically, I'm good. Things are fine. I'm a good person. And we tell ourselves that, but then every once in a while, we do something, or we say something, or like, we're just like, whoa, where did that come from? Like, if we're honest with ourselves, when we're looking in the mirror, it's like, yeah, I've got some, I've got some issues. Like, I, I don't even keep my own standards. I don't even like the, I don't, I don't like the things I do and say sometimes. So we know there's, there's this human sin issue, and God is a God who is perfectly just. He is holy. He is, he's a God of justice that, that like, God in, in anything evil, anything broken, anything sinful, they can't mix together. And so God's got to, he's got to ha- do justice on evil in the world. That every bit of evil and sin has to be addressed. It has to be paid for. Um, and, and we push back against that sometimes. But, but honestly, if God did not address the sin and the evil of humanity throughout history and all of the atrocities and all of the things that have been done, and he said, no, it's no big deal. I'm not going to do anything about that. We would think he was a monster. And so something has to be done about human sin. And so you have the justice of God where we should have to pay for the things that we've done, but then it's, it's held in tension with the love and the grace and the goodness and the mercy and the forgiveness of God where he wants to forgive. And so that's where Jesus steps in. And while we were the ones who are broken, we are the ones who are sinful, Jesus comes and says, I'm going to take the punishment that you deserve. I want to take that on to myself. I'm going I'm to bear the weight, the curse of sin on me, even though I didn't do it and, and I don't deserve it. It's this idea that, that theologians talk about. It's called penal substitutionary atonement, okay? This idea of penal meaning punishment, substitute meaning I should have been punished, but I'm not going to be. Jesus is on my behalf. And the the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus ever walks the earth, uh, he says it so beautiful. He says that that he was pierced for our transgressions, that, that he was crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds we are healed. And so that's the part that we often hear about, and it's a beautiful thing. And so no matter who you are, if you're a church person, you're not a church person, you know, you, you've given your life to Christ or not, that's the beautiful truth for you, is that as messed up as we can be, we've got to own that, yet there is grace, there is forgiveness. Jesus offers that. But the second part, how does Jesus address supernatural evil and spiritual darkness and brokenness? That's the part that maybe we don't know what to do with, or we don't talk about that often. But to understand what Jesus was doing and how he addresses those things, we've got to understand what his primary message was when he showed up on the planet. When Jesus showed up on the planet, his, his primary message was not a message of, I'm here to save you from your sin. That was a part of his overarching message. But he went around everywhere he went. His message, his focus was the kingdom of God is at hand. 
The kingdom of God is here. It is here. It is now. It is breaking into the present reality. The kingdom of God is here. And so everything that Jesus did and said was all about pointing to this reality of the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God on earth. And so everything that he did, like his teaching was all about the kingdom. He would talk about things, the kingdom of God is like this, or the kingdom of God is like that. When he would do miracles, you know, he would, he would feed all of these people, and it wasn't just about like, hey, you're hungry, watch me do a cool trick so you'll believe I'm actually God. That was part of it, but there's also this message of there is, there is plenty in the kingdom. That in the kingdom of God, people have what they need so they can survive, so they can live, so they can flourish. When Jesus showed up and healed people again, it wasn't just to, to prove his power. Like, yes, there was that, but it's this, 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 this message of the kingdom that there is no disease, there is no sickness, there is no death in the kingdom. So Jesus shows up doing all of these things. The, the people that he invites, he goes to the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners and all of the outcasts of society because it's a message that says the kingdom is for everyone. There's something else that was always tied to Jesus' kingdom message that sometimes, as modern people, we don't really know what to do with, and this is the idea of him casting out demons. It's like, you know, you read the New Testament, you're reading the gospel, and it's like, and Jesus cast out a demon, and you're like, I didn't have a Sunday school lesson about that, okay? Can we go back to the fishes and the loaves and sing a happy little song? But what do I do with Jesus casting out a demon? And again, he didn't do anything accidentally. It wasn't coincidence. It was another indicator in a message saying the kingdom of God is here. And so it was a message to the spiritual powers of darkness that your time is up. That the one who has the ultimate authority is here and your time is up. And so if you actually, if you'll read throughout the Gospels and you'll run into these accounts that Jesus has interactions with spiritual powers of darkness and people who are uh, under the, the influence of demonic possession, they know exactly who Jesus is. Like, they're not surprised by him showing up. They're like, who's this guy? You're telling me to, you know, get out. What are you talking about? Like, they, they know exactly who he is. Like, one of the most famous times, there's this account where Jesus and his disciples, they cross a lake, and they go to this region called the region of the Gerasenes. And it's a Gentile region, meaning it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a Jewish region. You know, last week we kind of talked about how God had given over these other nations to these uh, lesser spiritual beings. And so this isn't, this isn't God's space and Jesus uh, in terms of geography. They, they thought majorly in terms of, okay, geographic location. And Jesus shows up in this Gentile region, one, as a sign to say, hey, what I'm doing is not just for the Jewish people, it's for everyone. And when they get there to the region of the Gerasenes, they, they encounter this guy who's possessed by a demon, and they have this interaction, and it's this really famous interaction where Jesus is like, hey, what's your name? And the response is, my name is Legion, for we are many. And at that point, you're like, I don't want to read this anymore because I've seen too many horror movies. Um, and then he's like, okay, go into those pigs. And the, the, the demon goes into the pigs and runs down the mountainside and into the water. And you're like, that was weird. That was really weird. And that's a whole other conversation. But what I want us to see is when, when, when Jesus has this interaction with this man who is possessed by a demon, how this man, under demonic influence, how he, how he addresses Jesus. He says, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God. That whenever spiritual powers of darkness, like whenever these demonic forces, whenever they encounter Jesus, they're always like, oh, we know exactly who you are. You are the son of the most high God. Back in the first week of the series, we talked about this idea that there's, there's different spiritual beings. The Hebrew word is Elohim, and angels, and demons, and cherubim, and seraphim, and, uh, and, and, but, but Yahweh, God most high, is unlike any of them. That he is above and beyond all of them. And so Jesus shows up, and they're like, oh, we know exactly who you are. 
You're the son of the most high God. What do you want to do with us? The spiritual powers of darkness, they know exactly who Jesus is. They know exactly what he is there to do. They, they know, they're not dumb, they know that he is there to, to reset things. They know that he is there to, to kick off that Eden project again. You see, there, there, there is no like plan B for God. God's plan for creation, his plan for humanity has always been, I want, I, want to, I want humanity to love me, to have a relationship with me. I want there to be this divine and human partnership where humanity are the image bearers of God. That is God's desire from the very beginning, and he's not given up on that project. And so when Jesus shows up, they're like, we know what you're here to do. You're, you're here to, to, to relaunch this whole Eden, this Eden project and to be like, oh, it's God's rule and reign. You're here to bring the kingdom. They know who Jesus is. They know what he's there to do. But here's the really important thing. They don't know how he's going to do it. They don't know how this is going to be accomplished. The Apostle Paul is writing uh, to the church in Corinth in a letter we call 1 Corinthians. And it's just a bunch of people that are trying to figure out what does following Jesus look like. You know, they, they, they've come out of pagan backgrounds, uh, worshiping all these different gods. They're, they're, they, they don't know the true God. And all of a sudden they're like, we believe in Jesus. And so Paul's like, all right, we got to figure a lot of stuff out. So he writes these letters. And in the letter of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says this. He's talking about uh, the message that he has uh, proclaimed to this church. He says, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. And so basically Paul's saying, when, when I came and I brought the message of Jesus to you, I wasn't using like big words and these, these super intellectual arguments of trying to convince you, to convince you and convince you and convince you that, that, that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He's like, no, I just kind of came and I laid out the message of the gospel. That God has shown up, that he's done something in history, that God became a man, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, that he has been seen. So Paul says, I, I don't want your faith in Jesus to be something that's built on human wisdom, but on God's power. And while he's on the, the, the topic and the conversation of wisdom, he rolls into this other idea. He says, well, while we're speaking about wisdom, we didn't win uh, you Corinthians over with wisdom, but we do, however, speak a kind of wisdom among the mature. But it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. And so remember, we've kind of talked about when the Apostle Paul, when he says things like rulers, uh, powers, principalities, authorities, lords, that's his way of talking about the spiritual powers of darkness. And he says the, the wisdom of God, this wisdom that's been proclaimed to the Corinthian church, which is, it's the cross, it's the gospel. The wisdom of God is the self-sacrificial love, self love of Jesus. It's the cross of Jesus. He says that's God's wisdom, but it's not a wisdom of this age. The New Testament authors talk about like the world that we're living in as this current age, this present age, this age of, of darkness. That it's the world that we see when we look around us, a world that is it is so defined by evil, by pain, by suffering, by death, by power, by violence. By, uh, it's a world where you want to know what's right. Well, whoever has the most power, whoever has the most influence, whoever, you know, it's, it's, it's what's best for me and my people and my tribe, regardless of who I have to hurt, who I have to step on to get there. Like, it, it's, it's abuse. It's all of these things. That, like, that is this age. And he says, the wisdom of God 
this idea that God would become a man and die for his creation. That doesn't make sense to this age. It doesn't fit with how the world works, the wisdom of this age, or the rulers of this age. The spiritual powers of darkness that sit behind this world. And the New Testament authors pick up this idea, and they, they talk about Satan, the adversary, as he's the, he's the prince of this age. He's the prince of this current world, this current darkness. And as he says, look, this wisdom of God, the cross, it, it, it makes no sense to this world or the powers of darkness. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom. It was a, a mystery, a wisdom that God predestined before the ages for our glory. This, this hidden wisdom, the cross, that God would become a man and give his life to set things right. He says it, it was hidden, but it was, it was predestined. It was planned before the ages. That is to say that before the beginning of time, the plan was always the cross. Before time began, before God created anything, when it was just God existing for eternity, the triune God and nothing else, the plan was always the cross of Jesus. The plan was always, I will, I will sacrifice, I will die because I love my creation, because I want people to have a relationship with me. It was always the plan. And Paul's like, this is the wisdom of God, and it makes no sense according to the world. But then he goes on and says that none of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom doesn't make sense to them. They weren't, they weren't aware of it. They didn't know the plan because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The spiritual powers of darkness, they, they knew who Jesus was. They knew that he was the son of the most high God. They knew what he wanted to do. He wanted to set things right. He wanted to, to relaunch Eden. He wanted to do this whole God and humanity living together kind of thing again, but they didn't know how he was going to do that. It's not like it was obvious. You know, sometimes in hindsight, we're kind of even hard on the, on the human aspect of things like, how did people miss Jesus? How did they not know that this is who he was? It's like, you know, we, we have the benefit of, okay, we, we see that he was here and he rose and we can kind of look back and put all the pieces together. But in the moment, it's, it's not like it's just super clear where there's just this, well, you go to this one chapter and verse in the Old Testament and it says exactly that God's going to become a man and he's going to die and he's going to raise again. And it's like, you get there by taking bits and pieces all throughout the Old Testament, but there's, there's a sense in which it's hidden. It's hidden. It wasn't obvious. And the cross is foolishness to this world and the powers of darkness, but it's the wisdom of God. And so these spiritual powers of darkness, they know who Jesus is, they know what he's there to do, and they know that whenever, uh, whenever God reinstitutes and, and brings thing to, things to completion and fullness, that that spells the end for them. And so they think, we need to act. We need to kill him. We need to kill him. And that'll solve the problem. And Jesus knows this. He wants this. He's in complete control of this throughout the entire time. That's why he says things like, hey, no one takes my life, but I lay it down. This is what he wants to happen. And so he goes around picking a fight. Part of what Jesus does whenever he shows up on the planet is he picks a fight with the spiritual powers of darkness. That's why he goes around casting out demons. It's this idea of, I am here, I have the authority do something about it. 
And so he's casting out demons. And then, man, towards the end of, of his ministry, there are two really famous accounts that kind of happen back to back. And we don't often pick up on the supernatural element of it because last time I checked, none of us are first century Jewish disciples of Jesus. Anybody here? If so, you look really good for being like 2,000 years old, all right? But so we, we don't pick up on some of this, but I want to look at these two accounts. The first one is this famous uh, account where, where Jesus and his disciples, they're on the road up to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus asks this question. He's like, hey, what are people saying about me? Who do people say that I am? And they're like, well, you know, some people say you're like John the Baptist, come back to life, or you're like Elijah, or you're the prophet. And he's like, okay, who do you guys say that I am? And Peter gives this, this famous statement. He says, you know what? You, you are the Messiah. That is the promised one, the one who is going to fix all of this. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. And this is how Jesus responds. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And so Jesus says, bingo, Peter, you are absolutely right. I I am the Messiah. I have come to fix this. I am going to do something to set this right, and I am going to build my church. And don't think building, think movement. The word is ecclesia. It's a gathering. It's a a group of people gathered together, moving forward with a common cause. I want to build my church, my movement, my mission on this declaration that I am the Messiah, and I have come to do something for the whole world. And then he says, the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Some translations, may, may, you may have like the gates of hell, but hell isn't necessarily a great translation because of what we import. We think fire and pitchforks and little, you know, red guy with pointy tail, um, but that's not the idea. The idea is the, the realm of the dead. That's what Hades is. The, 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 like death itself will not stop what Jesus is here to do. And we think, oh man, that's cool, that's, I mean, yeah, yeah, rah, rah, Jesus, death isn't going to hold you down, you're going to build your church, and, and that is pretty awesome. And then you kind of bring in this, this next layer of meaning that the disciples were all tracking along with because of this little thing called cosmic geography, where they were actually standing when this happened. They're standing in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Uh, this is kind of a rendition of it. Um, Pastor Paul, because he's cool like this, actually had the opportunity to go to Israel and see the Holy Land several years ago. And he got to go to Caesarea Philippi. And in Caesarea Philippi, there's some pictures he, that he sent me. And also, this is a blown up picture that is, that is there that was like kind of, this is what it probably would have looked like in the time of Jesus. Uh, and and it, it's this place that is just full of all these temples um, to these different gods. All, all these little uh, um, shrines and temples all over the place. So there was a temple to the Greek god Pan there. There was a temple to Zeus there. Um, there were little, you can't really see them probably because they're kind of far away, but there's these little nooks cut into the sides of the mountain there where people would bring offerings and sacrifices, and they would come there to worship all of these other gods. In the New Testament, it's called Caesarea Philippi because Roman emperors were full of themselves and renamed things for them, but in the Old Testament, it was known as the region of Bashan which is also known as the region of the serpent, the region of the snake. And it's at the base of, of Mount Hermon, which again is a place of pagan worship, all these other gods. And it was kind of famous in the ancient world, in Old Testament times, and moving into the New Testament, as this was considered the gateway to the realm of the dead. It was the gateway to the underworld. It was the gateway to Hades. This was like, all oh, the realm of death and destruction, this is like ground zero for that. 
And so as Jesus is standing there talking to his disciples, says, I'm, I'm about to do something, and I'm going to launch this movement in the gates of Hades. It's right back behind me, guys. He's like, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Actually, if you, if you look on the picture, there's a, a dark spot there on the left of the screen behind that one temple. This, uh, let me see if I can blow that up for you or give me a little circle for you. Right here. See that dark spot? That is the actual uh, gateway to the underworld, the gate of Hades, the gate of hell. And here's what it looks like if you were to go there today. The temple's obviously missing, although you can see uh, there's some blocks over there, and there's some there. And here's one of those little shrine things up there. There's a little something going on. Um, and, and so you can go there, and what it is, it's this giant chasm in the side of this mountain. And down in there, there's like a cistern. There's a body of water, and they would do all kinds of things in the ancient world. They would like slaughter animals as sacrifices and just toss them down into the water to make offerings to these gods because that was the gateway to the realm of the dead. And Jesus knows this, and his disciples know this. It's as if he's saying, you guys know exactly what this place is, that this is Satan's domain, and I'm about to turn it into his tomb. I'm about to turn, this, this is where the end, it takes place for him. It's like he shows up, Jesus shows up on the front door of the powers of spiritual darkness and just starts pounding and says, I'm here. Bring it. And it's interesting because then you're left asking the question, okay, well, how? How is this going to be accomplished? And the gospel authors make sure that the very next thing they start talking about says from that point on, Jesus began to explain that he would go to Jerusalem, that he would suffer, and he would die. So here's how it's going to happen. I will, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. And Peter actually shouts, I was like, never, never will that happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter, you don't have the things in mind of God. This is, this is the things in mind of the adversary. So you have that account take place where Jesus is just like, come on, let's go. I'm here. Do something about it. And then the very next thing that happens is what's called the transfiguration. Uh, and so after six days, so six days after this has happened at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus takes Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. It goes on to say that they, they hear this voice from heaven. They hear God saying, this is my son I, whom I love. I'm well pleased with him. Do what he says. And so there's this moment where these three disciples get to see Jesus revealed for who he really is, where he, reveals, he reveals himself. This is who I am. I'm the son of the most high God. And again, kind of the, the cosmic geography is an important thing here. It says that he goes up on a high mountain. Well, the only high mountain in that region near Caesarea Philippi is Mount Hermon, which in the ancient world was known for pagan worship and all these different messed up sacrifices. And in first century Jewish thought, which again, Jesus and his disciples, they're first century Jews, they're familiar with the literature. We touched on this idea of Enoch last week, how it was something they would have read, even though it's not considered scripture. But in Enoch's account, this is where the watchers touch down. That when the rebellious um, spiritual beings, when they, when they come down, when they step down to warp humanity, when they step down to just to bring about destruction, and they step down to, to, to uh, have sex with human women, and you get these weird, spiritually broken offspring things, it happens here at Mount Hermon. It's like this is ground zero. And so again, Jesus is there at the front door saying, here I am. I am revealing myself. You know who I am. Come and do something about it. He's provoking the spiritual powers of darkness. He wants them to act. 
He wants them to act and to have him killed. He wants them to pull the strings behind the scenes to influence Judas to betray him, to influence the the mob to to be riled up, to shout, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, to influence Pilate to say, okay, we're going to do it. Like, Jesus wants this to happen. Why? Because he's out to defeat death. He's out to defeat the realm of the dead, the Lord of the dead, death itself, and the only way you defeat death is with the resurrection. The only way you have resurrection is by dying. And so Jesus is provoking them. He's provoking them to a response. Uh, Dr. Michael Heiser, who this is where a lot of this information comes from. He's a Hebrew Bible scholar, um, spent decades working in this area, and like his PhD is basically in this idea of the supernatural, specifically how it intersects with the Old Testament. Uh, and he, <laughs> he says this, I love this quote in his book, The Unseen Realm. He says, The account of Peter's confession on the foot of Mount Hermon and the revelation of the transfiguration on its unholy slopes marked a key transition point in Jesus' life. After he throws down the gauntlet at the transfiguration, he begins to move toward Jerusalem to his death. The enemy knows who Jesus is, but the forces of darkness do not know the plan. Jesus has baited them into action and act they will. He has given them the rope, and they will eagerly hang themselves with it. Jesus will go to Jerusalem to drink from the cup the Father has planned for him, but the instrument of death will be the catalyst that launches the kingdom of God in its full force. I love that. The instrument of death. When, when everyone thinks it's over, when the enemy thinks we have won, he says like that, that is the very thing that is actually going to launch the kingdom of God into full force. I read that and it's just like, let's flippin' go. You know, sometimes we're like, Jesus, oh, he's nice and he's my friend and he died for my sins and that's so happy. And that's true and that is awesome and we should celebrate that, but make no mistake about it. Jesus also showed up to pick a fight with the spiritual powers of darkness. And he knew exactly what it would cost him, but he said, let's go, I'm doing it anyway, because this is what has to be done. I love it, love it. See, the the cross of Jesus, his death and, and the following resurrection is the solution to both parts of the problem of what we see with the world. Like, it, it, is, it is the solution to my human sin problem. He has taken my place, that I do things, you do things, we say things, we think things that we know that fall short of God's standard, and that, that sin that keeps us separated from him, that keeps us broken, it keeps us contributing to the brokenness around us, and Jesus says, I'm going to take that on myself so you don't have to pay, so that you can have relationship with God again, the thing that you were made for. The cross accomplishes that but it also accomplishes the defeat of the powers of darkness. Death no longer has its hold and its grip on the world because of the resurrection of Jesus. Another one of his letters, the Apostle Paul, he says this to the church in in Colossae. He says that when you were dead in your trespasses, that that is your sin, that is your brokenness, the things that you do that you shouldn't do, when you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, his way of saying that, that, that there's this part of us, this fleshly part, the part that's just like, I want to do all the bad stuff all the time. Like, I know the things I should do, and those are the very things I don't want to do, and I know what I shouldn't do, and it's like, but that looks so fun. He's like, well, you were, well, you were dead in your trespasses, in, in, in the, the uncircumcision of your flesh. God hadn't got a hold of your heart yet, that he, being Jesus, made you alive with him, and he forgave us all of our trespasses, all of that sin, all that stuff that we carry, you're forgiven. And he erased the certificate of debt. There's a sense there's a debt that I owed. Something had to be paid, but it's been erased. The certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us, and he has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. 
And so Paul lays out this beautiful picture of, listen, like, you, you are carrying some stuff. You have messed some things up. You, you, we, we, we instinctively know this. He says, but you don't have to pay for that anymore because Jesus has paid for it on the cross. There's part one of the solution to what's wrong with our world. And the very next thing he says, the very next words out of his mouth, are he also disarmed the rulers and the authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them through it, it being the cross. He's paid for your sins, and he has made a mockery of the powers of darkness. And so what is the implication of that? The implication is, is kind of how he opens this particular letter. He says, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. In him, we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Like he, here, here is what Jesus has done. He has, he has come to, to launch the kingdom of God, to bring the kingdom of God crashing into reality, into anybody who wants it to say, you are a part of the kingdom of darkness and I will transfer you. I will move you from one kingdom, from one domain, from one dominion into mine, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, to, from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life, to the kingdom of destruction, to the kingdom of flourishing. I want to move you from one place to the other. That is what he has shown up to do. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are in Christ, you are no longer in the kingdom of darkness. You have been transferred into the kingdom of the Son, the Son, Jesus. You've been rescued. You've been redeemed. You have new life. Like Jesus, as, as cliche as it sounds to say that Jesus is the answer to everything. He is the answer to everything that ails us, but not just us as individuals. He's the answer to what ails our world. He is the solution to the problem because he has reversed the curse of sin, of death, and of evil. He's reversed the curse of sin, that thing that we carry around. And for some of you, like, that's your thing. And maybe you're a follower of Jesus and maybe you're not, but you struggle with this idea of, I know when I look in the mirror and I know the internal dialogue that goes through my head, I know how broken and how messed up I am. And there is no way that God can forgive me. There is no way that he could ever use me. There is no way, I, I know what a disaster I am. And the beauty of the gospel doesn't sweep that under the rug. It says, yeah, you kind of are, but you're not on the hook for that. He has reversed the curse of sin. You don't have to bear that anymore. You are forgiven. But he's also the answer to supernatural evil. That you, you don't have to live under the dominion or the domain of darkness. Like that, that's what this world is right now, man. Things are broken. There is evil. There are things that just make us shake our head and go, what is, what is wrong with the world? Why are people so broken? Why, why are things so messed up? But, but understand that that has been broken. That has been defeated we don't have to live in that kingdom of darkness anymore. That you enter into a different kingdom. And you can trust that that, that, that kingdom of darkness is living on borrowed time. The, the cross reminds us that the powers of darkness are living on borrowed time. Right now, there, there, there's kind of these two kingdoms warring in the present reality. The kingdom of God is here in Jesus. It is here. But at the same time, this kingdom of darkness is still fighting tooth and nail to drag people down with it. But that's a temporary thing. The darkness was defeated at the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
We're waiting for the fulfillment of it. And so we, we, we know that the spiritual powers of darkness are broken. And ultimately, he's the answer to sin. He's the answer to spiritual darkness. He's the answer to death itself. The very thing that is kind of sitting behind all of it, that the path that the kingdom of darkness goes to is death. The very thing that, that, man, regardless of where you are, man, we are all going to die. That is the destiny for every single human being. And the, the thing that is kind of like our most basic, primal, instinctual fear is that, that, that makes that fight or flight kick in. Jesus shows up and says, I'm actually the solution to that too, because that was never how it was intended to be. That, that when you are transferred into the kingdom of Jesus, your life is attached to his, and you're into the kingdom now, but also into all eternity, that because Christ was raised, you will be raised with him. See, this is why the gospel is such good news. That's why it means good news. Because it touches and impacts every area of life. It's not just a happy thought of like, yay, I'm forgiven and I go to church and I guess that's great so I'll go to heaven someday. It's like, no, it's good news because the kingdom of God is here and I am in it now. I'm not waiting around for it. I'm a part of it right now. It impacts every area of my life that Jesus has come, that he has the ultimate authority, that he is the solution to the problem. The question simply is, have I made the transfer yet? Have I been moved from one kingdom into the other? There's the kingdom of darkness, there's this age, and then there's the kingdom of God. Have I been moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus? It's this thing that happens through faith. Talk about like faith in Christ, faith in Jesus. That's, that's what it is. It's saying, Jesus, I need you. I need you to rescue me. I need you to forgive me for my sins because I know you paid for that. And then I need you to take me out of this kingdom of darkness and move me into the kingdom of God. Have you stepped into that kind of divine transfer yet and moved into the kingdom of the Son? Some of you, maybe that's yes. Some of you, maybe that's no. Some of you who are watching online, maybe you're like, I don't really know. I want to talk to someone. That would be a great time to text Jesus to the phone number to get some questions answered. But I want to encourage you, maybe, that, maybe that's your step today, is take that step towards Jesus and say, I, I'm moving from this kingdom of death or darkness into the kingdom of the Son. For many of you, though, you say, I've already made that initial kind of step. I'm part of the kingdom of God. I've put my faith in Jesus. Well, then for us, the way, what we do with that is living out the kingdom every single day. Living from a reality of, you know what, I'm, I'm not a part of the kingdom of darkness anymore. That, that Satan and the spiritual powers of darkness, they have no authority over my life. They have no say in who I am and my identity and my worth and what I have to do and what I have to say and how I have to live. They have no power over me. And so live like people of the kingdom. Step into whatever God has. Step into that next step of faith and declare that I'm a kingdom person. I've been rescued. I've been redeemed. I've been restored because Jesus has been victorious. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much just for this, for this truth that we see in your word that everything that ails us, that everything that is broken with our world, God, you have, you have come to set right. You have set it right through Jesus, through his death and resurrection. We have the hope that, uh, that, that our sin is paid for. We have the hope that uh, the powers of darkness have been defeated. We have the hope that that death will not hold us down, that we have an eternity with you to look forward to. Lord, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard. I, I pray that you would give us the strength, the, the boldness, the, the courage to do it. Lord, wherever we're at on a, on a faith journey today, whether we're uh, just discovering you or still have questions or we've been following you for a while, God, I pray through the power of your spirit that you would move us closer and closer into relationship with you. 
I pray that you would transform us into the kind of kingdom people that we need to be. So that not only we would live as members of your kingdom, but so that the world around us would know they're invited in as well. We pray this in Jesus' name.